in 1 Timothy, we see Paul is writing a letter. He's writing a letter to Timothy, which is why it's called Timothy. It's his first letter to Timothy that we know of. And Timothy is a partner in ministry. He's a pastor. This is one of Paul's pastoral letters where he's writing to encourage and instruct Timothy in, in his work in the ministry. And we can take that by extension that he is writing also to us. We are all priests and kings unto God. One of the things that is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian belief is the priesthood of believers. We are all priests unto God. Not, not, there's not one of you that is not called to ministry. Right. You may not be called to pulpit ministry, but you are called to ministry. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. We spent, gosh, weeks discussing what it means and our, our commission. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not pursue disciple-making. Do you understand that? No such thing. So Paul is writing to Timothy as a, as a pastor and, and partner in ministry. He may as well be writing to all of us as partners in ministry. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, First of all, then, first of all. So of all the things I want you to know, Timothy, the first thing I need you to get this is fundamental, foundational to what you got to do in your work in ministry I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So Paul instructs Timothy to pray for all people. It's interesting, he doesn't say pray for the ones that you love, pray for the ones that look like you, pray for the ones that act like you or smell like you, pray for the ones that you get along with, pray for the immediate circle of friends that you have, pray for the ones that influence you, pray for the ones that you have influence over, pray for the ones that can help you, pray for the ones that you need to in order to get in head in life. He said pray for all people. Amen. All people. In fact, Jesus said to pray for the ones that we don't even get along with. If you recall in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us to pray for our enemies. Now, that's not just someone that we, we're at odds with. That, an enemy is someone who wants to do you harm. And Jesus said, pray for that guy. Pray for those. How many of you have prayed, made it a point to pray for an enemy, for someone who has sought to do you harm? And we've all had that. We've all had people in our lives who, who have not had our best interests at heart, who have been selfish in their dealings towards us, who have wanted us to not succeed. It's, it's, the, it's the, the state that we live in, the fallen world with fallen people. We're such selfish creatures. So we all have them in our life, but how many of us make it a point, as Jesus said to do, to pray for those who hate us? We're real good about praying for the ones that we love and the ones that haven't caused us any harm and the ones that can help us get ahead in life, but to pray for those that hate us. So in a roundabout way, when Jesus said to pray for those who hate you, in a roundabout way, he's saying to pray for everybody, even the ones that hate you, not just the ones it's comfortable to pray about. Do you know how it's hard to hate somebody when you're praying blessings on them? It's real hard to do it. I've tried it. You can't do it. So it's as much for you as it is for them. Pray for everyone. 
And here Paul comes and he says it in, in no uncertain terms that prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings should be made for all people. But Paul says that we should offer intercession. I love that word that he uses because it's different than just prayer. It's different than thanksgiving. Intercession is going before God on behalf of another. It's like you're standing in the courtroom and you're pleading someone else's case. Go on their behalf. And then in verses 3 and 4, he tells us why. He says, This is good and pleasing in the sight of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are charged to pray for all people in verse 1 because it is pleasing to God and He desires that everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, verses 3 and 4. We're charged to pray on their behalf, to intercede for them. You know, Christ interceded for us on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We couldn't pray for ourselves So he did it for us. We lacked understanding. He understood for us. We lacked humility. He was humble for us. And then the book of Hebrews says that Christ is even now standing by the Father and he's offering intercession for us. He's there to offer final intercession for anyone who will believe and trust and treasure him. So then Paul says that we should pray for others. And the first thing that we should go to God for on their behalf, because it is pleasing to the Lord and because He desires it, is that we should go to Him for their salvation. The salvation of their souls. Not, Not just for their souls alone, but the souls of their whole household. Time and time again, when when salvation came to a a member of a household in the New Testament, it came to the whole house. They all, but we should pray for the salvation, not just of of the individual whose card you're going to get, but pray for the salvation of their whole house. Don't just assume that they already know Christ in a personal way. Don't just assume that. If, If you know the person that you're praying for, that is, and you know their fruits, and you know them to be a redeemed individual, that's, that's fine. But if not, pray for a gospel witness. Pray for a gospel witness to be sent into their lives. Plead with God on their behalf to turn their hearts towards Him, to open their eyes to Him, to His glory and His beauty and the treasure that, that they can have in Christ. The dead can't see it. God has to do something miraculous in their heart to make them alive. Pray that God would do that for them. We've seen Him do that very thing throughout all of Scripture. To arrest someone's heart. The Apostle Paul is a very prominent example of God's arresting grace. He arrested Paul. So we can pray for the salvation of of their souls with confidence that God would do a miracle of grace in their hearts and bring them to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So pray with faith and confidence that God would do this. No one comes to Christ except that the Father draws him. That's John 6, 44. So we pray, God, draw them to your Son. Draw them to your Son. 
This means that we ask for confession and not just profession. It, it may be that the people that you are praying for, the people that are currently on your prayer list and new ones that you're about to receive, it may be that they are already professing believers. Amen. Doesn't necessarily mean that they are confessing Christians. Now, I am, I'm making a distinction between the two because the Bible seems to make a distinction between the two. It doesn't matter what I say. We want to know what the Scripture says. So many people are raised, particularly in our part of the world, our part of the country, in a Christ-professing home. It's cultural Christianity. And for a large part of the last century, it has been very beneficial for you, been very culturally acceptable for you, for homes to be Christ-professing homes. And I would tell you that that is almost more dangerous to their souls than being raised in a pagan, godless, Christless environment. Because the disparity between truth and what they actually live is so different in a godless environment. It's, it's the light seems so much brighter when they see it. But in a Christ-professing home, There is this um, illusion of security so that when the real gospel is presented, when the real light of Christ is presented, it's almost more difficult for them to see it because they think, yeah, yeah, I already know that. I, I believe in Jesus. I, I, I believe that he, he exists. I believe in God. <laughs> and Jesus would say, yeah, you, you believe in the Lord. Even the devils do that. That's not what he called us to. He didn't call us to belief. He called us to confession. Amen. Amen. To love him, to cherish him. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's the same word, confess, is the same word, uh, that is used in the Greek in the New Testament for profess. It's the same Greek word. It, it, it is translated differently depending on how it's used. It has nuanced meanings. So in the same way, confessing and professing, in the way that those things are similar terms and they have similar meanings, to confess and profess, they are both uh, things that we say. They're both proclamations that, that we make when we confess something, when we profess something. It's a, a work of, of expression, a work of, of saying something. But the difference is subtle, and we can be clear. We can get a clear picture of this subtle difference by looking at other, other texts that use the word. There's three other times in, in the New Testament. I mean, this word's used several times, but three times where it's, where it's um, uh, translated as profess. And one of the most striking ones is in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, where, where he says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's the same Greek word where if you confess Christ with your mouth and believe in your heart that He is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Here they profess to love me, to know me, but they deny me by their works. 
There's a nuanced difference, but it is a huge difference. Huge difference. So these people who profess, professing Christians, who you very well may be praying for, and I think this is a tough one. It's a tough one. It's a tough heart to crack. Because, they, again, there's that illusion of security. They may have all the trappings and accoutrements of a Christian life. You know, they have crosses hanging on the walls of their living room. They've got the ichthus on their car, you know, the little fishes on their car. And every now and then they'll post scriptures on social media and they may even come to church occasionally. They know the story of the gospel. They've heard the scriptures and they know some of the scriptures by heart. Well, they know the, the really important ones, you know. Uh, For God so loved the world, I can do all things. My personal favorite, judge not lest you be judged. You know, they'll, they'll know those. They probably own a Bible, and if they do, they've got it sitting on their coffee table or on a bookshelf or a nightstand, somewhere prominent. It's there so they can, they can make a statement with it. It's more of a prop than anything else, though, because it has never been opened. Maybe they open it on Sunday morning if they bring it. Just like the crosses on their wall or the fish on their car, their Bible, their Scripture is more of a prop. It's more of a statement and a symbol than it is a tool or a treasure. They have all the professions of a Christian life, but none of the confession. It's not in their heart. You know them by their fruits. Watch them in traffic. Watch them in a business dealing where something doesn't go their way or when they are cheated. They don't act like the Mesopotamians, where Paul said they suffered with joy the plundering of their property. They don't act like that. What do we do? Puff up our chest and we get righteously indignant and we declare how we've been wronged. Watch them in line at Walmart when it's moving particularly slow. See, we, we, here's the thing. We get so caught up in the thou shalt nots of of living a Christian life. We think that as long as we're not doing those things on the, on the, the don't list, that we're, we're living right, as it were. You know, I, don't, I don't do these bad things. I don't do the terrible things. But so often, what we are forgetting, what we're forgetting is the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. In other words, love God with everything you've got, everything within you. So it's not about being a good person, which is what so often happens in Christ-professing homes. They, they boil Christianity down to, to moralism. I'm a good person. I don't steal. I don't kill. I don't want what my neighbor has. Basically, it boils down to just being moralist, moralistic, not salvation. That's altogether different. Salvation calls a person to so much more than the thou shalt nots. It's so much more than the list of don'ts. 
I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it goes back to what we've been working through in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who confess, who confess Christ, who have a, a heart behind what they say that lines up with what they say, they are peacemakers. They're merciful. They're pure in heart and poor in spirit, and they're mournful, and they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Oh, the things that we crave that aren't righteous. Those who confess Christ are, are those things. And we should pray for others that they would love righteousness and hate sin, as Brother Mike said. Pray that, they would, that it would become disgusting to them. Is sin disgusting to you or is it just, uh, it's, that's a thing, something that we shouldn't do. I don't want to, you know, I mean, let each his own, let him do his own thing. Or is it disgusting to you? I can't stand it. It's disgusting, and I hate it when I find it in my own heart. Oh, Lord, root it out. Kill it. Kill it dead. We should pray that they would love righteousness. Pray for their sincere salvation every day, their sincere confession of Christ, that the Lord would bless them with saving face to see and savor Christ as their absolute treasure. That is sincere and radical salvation. That's the most important thing. So first and foremost, we go, hope I've made the case to you. Go to God for the other people that you're praying for and pray for their salvation. Don't assume it. Pray that he open their heart in a radical way, to see him in a radical way, to change their life in a radical way. There's no such thing as a nonchalant Christian. Oh, we've gotten so comfortable with that. So comfortable with comfortable Christianity. And it is not comfortable. So beyond that, Paul does give us a wonderful list of beautiful things that we can pray for. He does this by example of his own prayer for the church at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to find this. Colossians chapter 1. So pray for their salvation. And then there's a, a list of these things. You know, you, some of the people that you should be on your prayer list and that, that you're about to receive, you don't know them from Adam. You don't know what their home life is. You don't know what their situation is. You don't know what they've been through, what they're facing, any specific needs that they have. You don't know that. So what then do I pray for, Lord? And we can look again to the Apostle Paul to find out. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, he begins by saying, And so from the day that we heard, now what, what they had heard about the people at Coloss was that they had come to faith in Christ, we heard that you have come to faith in Christ and you have a love for other people, so we have begun to pray for you. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So right off the bat, Paul tells them, I'm, I'm praying for you, and he tells them two different things. It looks like three, but as it's, as it's divided up or grouped up, it's actually two. The first thing he prays for is knowledge. Not just any knowledge, but knowledge of the will of God. Why are we always praying for an easy life? Why are we always praying, Lord, make me comfortable. Fix this situation. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Pray that we might know the will of God. Pray to see it in His Word. Pray that it becomes precious to us. Precious like a light is precious on a dark path. 
because that's what his word is. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You ever been on a dark path in the middle of the night and have no flashlight? Light is precious. So we pray for knowledge, knowledge of God, not just knowledge, any knowledge, knowledge of the will of God. We pray that for ourselves and we pray that for others also. And the second that he gives us in this verse is wisdom and understanding. And again, not just wisdom and not just understanding, but wisdom and understanding in spiritual things, of the spiritual matters. We are so very quick to pray for wisdom and understanding financially. Lord, let me make good financial moves. (laughs) Bless my pocketbook. But what about spiritual wisdom and understanding? You know, I I used to pray for my children in that way. I pray that God would give them wisdom in school. Pray that God give them wisdom in life to make good practical choices, to make productive choices in life. You know, who doesn't want their kids to do better than they do, to have it better than they have? We want that for our kids. That's natural desire for us to want our children to, to have it easier, to have it better than we had. It, it just took me a little bit to realize what better meant. It occurred to me that, you know, all the things I was asking for, the, you know, they would be wise in school and wise in the world was not necessarily what was important. What is important is that they love the will of God and that they know the will of God and that they have wisdom and understanding in spiritual things. If they do that, everything else will follow. The Lord has promised Seek first the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The Lord has promised to sustain them until He calls them home at such a time as is His pleasing and in such a way as is His pleasing. And that is a rock-solid, foundational trust that I can have in the Lord. I don't have to worry about praying for all this other stuff. I can pray, God, let them know and love your will. Give them spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. And guess what? They'll make wise decisions because they love the wisdom of God. We must also pray that others, for others, when we're praying for them, that they will love the things that God loves. This is what my take is on verse 10 where Paul follows this prayer for knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding by saying that he asks for those things so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And that's where I'm getting this, fully pleasing to him. Love the things that that God loves. And conversely, we could put it a negative way, they would hate the things that God hates. I want sin to be repulsive. Not only in my life, but in my children's life, the people that I love. I want them to make heaven their home, and so I want sin to repulse them. I want them to love the law of God. I want them to love the, the love of God and to love their neighbor as they love themselves. Pray this for them. Lord, cause them to love what you love. That'll make them lovers of righteousness. They'll seek it. They'll hunger and thirst for it. They won't satisfy their taste anymore on the things of the world. It'll, it'll all be strangely dim to them. It'll be dull tasting. Once they have savored Christ, nothing else satisfies. That's what Paul said. I count it all as loss. It's all done compared to the surpassing worth that I have in Christ. When you really taste him, none of this satisfies. That's what we pray for them. Lord, let them love what you love. 
And the natural consequence of this, of loving what God loves, is found in what Paul says next. He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're not asking for dead faith here. We want them to bear fruit in every good work. We're asking for an active, alive faith, faith that is evidenced by good works, every good work. You know, you can't, you can't coast through Christianity. You can't coast through a life in Christ. Not when Jesus says that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. There's no coasting there. We must bear the fruit of good works even on behalf of those who don't treat us very well, even in times of persecution, and that is not easy to do. Which is why we should also pray for verse 11, be, uh, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Pray for their strength to endure all of the things. And you know, once someone makes a confession, a confession of Christ, they come to know him in their heart and they start to live because their life has changed, they begin to live in this new and radical way. Jesus said that, don't, don't, you know, don't blink about it, don't, don't get upset about it. I've overcome the world, but in this world you will have tribulation. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, they will persecute you. They will revile you. They will speak all manner of evil against you on my account. So we ought to be praying that when they come to the knowledge of God that He strengthened them because it's, it's not going to be easy. We preach such a, oh, oh, such a, a cheap faith. We set people up to fail when we tell them everything's going to be all right if you, you won't have miscarriages anymore. You won't have to worry about food on your table anymore. You won't have to worry about sickness anymore. You don't have to worry about your pocketbook anymore if you just come to Christ. That is antithetical to what the Scripture actually teaches. Amen. Amen. Oh, it's a blessed walk. It is such a blessed life. It really is. But, it, but he teaches us that we'll have our ultimate reward when we see him, not through a mirror dimly, but face to face. And that in this life, we, we're going to have tribulation. Don't worry about it. I've overcome the world. But you're going to face tribulation. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into diverse temptation. Let joy, let patience have her perfect work. Christians must come to the cross, and it must become so real to them. The completed work of Christ becomes so precious. The promises of heaven so valuable that their joy is grounded firmly in that indestructible foundation. Amen. You know, we're not meant to be depressed. We're meant to be joyful, happy people in the craziest of situations. Joyful, happy people. That doesn't mean that we don't have sorrow. Amen. We just went through a great time of sorrow in our own church with the loss of our pastor doesn't mean we don't weep for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. So we experience sorrow. But he said, the mourning, those who mourn will be comforted. He comforts, he brings a comfort of joy to those who mourn. And finally, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
That's a natural expression of joy is gratitude. It's fascinating for me how joy produces a grateful heart, and a grateful heart produces joy. It's like they, they feed on each other. Grateful people are joyful people, and joyful people are, are grateful people. So pray that God will increase their strength through joy, that that joy would overflow into gratitude towards Him. Boy, you know, that will sustain you, just being thankful for Christ, what He's done. That will get you through a whole lot of darkness. So let's, let's list all this out. So I've got seven things that we've covered to pray for. For these people who are on your list, the new ones that you're about to receive, the ones that are already there, there's so much more than praying for them for let them get a new car, help them get this better job. This is eternal stuff. Number one, pray for their sincere salvation, confession, not profession only. Number two, pray that they would know and love God's will. Know it and love it. Number three, pray for spiritual wisdom and understanding in spiritual things. It does mean no profit. Profits mean nothing if I gain the whole world, but I lose the kingdom of God. I can have all wisdom and all knowledge, Paul says. I don't have love. I'm, I'm, I'm misunderstanding spiritual things. I'm as a noisy, noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Pray that they will love what God loves. And conversely, hate what God hates. Pray for faith that is alive, that moves them to good works, not, not faith that, that is dead. Amen. Pray that God would give them strength to endure, increase their joy, and pray that joy would overflow in gratefulness to God. Now, I will add that it is absolutely appropriate for you to pray these things for yourself. The second great commandment Love God with all your heart, with everything you've got. The second one is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is appropriate love of self to ask for these things for ourselves. They will strengthen us and enable us in the pursuit of love for others. In this, this sacrificial prayer that we pray for others. I know that I so often get wrapped up in my own life and in my own prayer time and, and just the, the stuff that's going on around me. And I have to mentally take a few steps back oftentimes and, and just kind of assess what's important. Why am I praying the things that I'm praying? Why, I mean, Jesus said, cast your, Peter said, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. The Lord said, lay your burdens on me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So I get it, we should take our cares to the Lord, but then I, I have to wonder, why is this a care of mine? Why, why, do I, why am I concerned about some of the things that I'm concerned about? Is this not something that I should just trust in the Lord for? And so I very oftentimes have to go back to the basics because I get so caught up in the things that, is, that are going on around me and in the, the, the times and in the, the situations and scenarios that I get caught up in, the work I have to do and the circumstances of, of, of my life. And I have to think, Lord, take me back to the beginning. Amen. I want to know you better. I want to love you better. Give me spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. Help me to do what you have commanded me to do. 
and to do it with joy. And give me, I always pray, Lord, give me wisdom. And then I follow that up with two other things, discipline, to do the wise thing, and energy, to do the wise thing. It's no good to know what to do if we don't have the discipline to do it or the energy to do it. Lord, help me not just to know it, but to love it and to crave it and to, to pursue it. Increase my joy in you so that the things of earth are dim and I'm not distracted, but I have my eyes on the prize of the mark of the high calling of God. When you make the will of God in the word of God your earnest prayer, church, it accomplishes much. The effectual, fervent prayer of the earnest man availeth much. Righteous man availeth much. And I want to see much accomplished when the people of God pray. Especially when we pray for the lost. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, I love you. And I thank you for this time we have together. And I thank you for your word. It is holy. I ask you that you help us become prayer warriors, not just for the things that we need, Lord, but help us to become prayer warriors, intercessors on behalf of others, those who don't know you, Lord, and for those that do know you, that we pray all the right things, Lord, that they be strengthened in you, that they love you, and that they know your will, and they love your will, that they have spiritual understanding, Lord. Increase their joy. Help us to let, let this be a burden on our hearts, not just for ourselves, but for others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.